Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Our guest is Brian J. Cram, author of a book about a world-famous band that is technically from Rockford, Illinois, but which owes a lot of success to Madison. That band, of course, is Cheap Trick. The book is This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick from the Good People at Jawbone Press. The book's titled Notwithstanding, the band does indeed have a past, and a very interesting one at that. First, there was the Byzantine way in which the band's Grim Reapers, Toast and Jam, Friends, Tunes, Xander and Kent, Sick Man of Europe, Fuse, and others morphed and mutated into Cheap Trick. Then there was the relentless and ultimately successful effort by our friend Ken Adamani, who booked or managed several iterations of the bands before they became Cheap Trick, to get them that record deal. Their hard work paid off. 5,000 live performances, 20 million albums sold, induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a doubleheader that Brian J. Cramp is well, and maybe even uniquely qualified to tell. After all, he was across the street from Sunset Bowl in his native Waukesha, Wisconsin, that night in 1976, when a legendary record producer signed on with Cheap Trick. Now, Brian was two years old at the time, so he was likely not aware of the epical event, but it does give him some uh, skin in the game. And he's worn out a lot of shoe leather researching the book, at least metaphorically, interviewing not just several of the principals, but tracking down musicians who were in bands with the Tricksters close to 60 years ago. The result is a fascinating deep dive into a band that went from bowling alleys and beer halls to arenas and stadiums, from the stone hearth to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Brian J. Cramp. Hey, Stu. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. And first, we should note that you use your middle initial not because you're pretentious, but to differentiate yourself from the Brian Cramp, who is a reporter on Milwaukee television. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> even even Zeno uh, confused me with him. <laughs> so When you call yourself Zeno, you know, these things are going to happen. <laughs> So what is it about Cheap Trick that so excites you, you would spend years researching and writing a book about them? Well, I grew up being kind of an obsessed fan of especially hard rock music, and Cheap Trick are kind of the ultimate example of one of those bands. And I, I'm a big record collector. I love a lot of different kind of subgenres, from power pop and punk rock to AOR and what they call hair metal. And you know, Cheap Trick is really the only band that kind of encompasses all of the different genres I like into one band. And then at the same time, you have this great sense of humor and kind of a satirical nature. So there's just so much to love about the band, especially for someone like me, who's kind of always been an obsessed rock fan and a record collector. You know, they just, they tick all of the boxes for a guy like me, especially. You quote at length an advertisement in a trade journal for their first album, that excerpted dozens of reviews, which described their music as Anglo-metallic neurosis, theatrical heavy pop rock, new wave extremism, destructo rock and roll, slapstick noir, a breath of fresh carbon monoxide. <laughs> How do you describe the Cheap Trick sound and performing persona? Yeah, they're, they're like this glam punk metal hybrid, but they're never pretentious, you know? And I think 
that was really interesting when I started picking up on the way all of the rock writers had so much fun writing about Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick inspired these guys to get really creative with their descriptions. And I, you know, that's why guys like me really love Cheap Trick because there's so much going on there that you have all of these writers across the country who got very creative. And it was like every adjective known to man. And it was amazing that every guy came up with a completely new way to describe them. You know, I don't know if you could find any other band that would have inspired that much pontification, you know? So yeah, when I noticed that, I just started collecting every description like that because I just envisioned this long list, which ended up in the book because there were so many great descriptions. And it's because all these guys who were creative themselves were inspired by Cheap Trick to, you know, get creative with the way they wrote about them. And it was, I, I think that's a an aspect of why Cheap Trick are special because you see how they inspired all these different writers to, in their own creativity. Yeah, I, I think that list in the book goes on for three or four pages of just, those, and, and we're talking, you know, five, two or three or four or five word descriptions. Mm -hmm. So you've got hundreds of them, it seemed, of those writers trying to describe just what it was they were hearing and seeing. And you could tell they were having fun when they were doing it too. So it's uh, it's really neat to see the way they were inspired creatively, but they were also like in on it. They were in on the fun, in on the joke, because there is always an element of kind of that the joke or the prank <laughs> that Cheap Trick are playing on you at the same time. How much of their commercial success do you think had to, especially in the beginning, had to do with that sense of humor, with their image, with their presentation, with the whole unified package of what Cheap Trick was? Well, I think it's definitely part of the reason they were so popular in Japan, you know, because they had that kind of cartoonish image. And so, of course, that popularity in Japan kind of catapulted them eventually into kind of worldwide success. You know, without without the popularity in Japan, we wouldn't have had Cheap Trick at Budokan. So, and I, you know, I think it's definitely that cartoonish quality that they had that really was a big part of why they were so popular in Japan. So, yeah, that had a lot to do with it. And how much did that cartoonish aspect also endear them to bands like Kiss and Queen, who would then have them on as opening acts for them? Yeah, that was a, that's another amazing thing that you notice is that they could open for anybody. You know, they went on, they were on tour with Kansas. They went over to Europe with Kansas. Now that seems like an odd pairing. And at the same time, they had a break one night and they went and played a punk, a punk rock show at the Roundhouse with two punk bands. You know, what other band could be on tour with Kansas and play a punk show in London? So yeah, they could open for anybody. And yeah, They've always been a band's band where all the guys in the other bands love them. They've always had that aspect going on, too. And as a matter of fact, they're opening later this year on a tour with Rod Stewart. Right, right. But at the same time, you know, they could they can uh, go play a club and they'll have a lot of fans of punk rock and, and stuff like that or heavy metal, metal heads. You know, they, yeah, they can play to the Rod Stewart crowd and they can play to the punk crowd or the metal crowd. There's not a lot of bands that have that kind of 
kind of crossover appeal. But the- they have they always have had the very heavy kind of abrasive elements, but they always have the nice sweet melodies. You know, Rick Nielsen wrote really great melodies and Robin Zander delivers them so well that yeah, they just have this very broad appeal. The Ramones even covered one of their songs. Yeah, the Ramones definitely were fans. Even after the book was finished, I talked to Cheetah Chrome from the Dead Boys, legendary punk band, and I discovered that all of the Dead Boys were at the show that Cheap Trick played at Max's Kansas City when they were in New York making their first album, and the Dead Boys loved Cheap Trick. So, yeah, that's another example. There's not a lot of bands that can open for Rod Stewart, but also win over the Dead Boys in 1976. Now, you say that Rick Nielsen wrote, you know, lovely melodies. His words could be a little twisted. I mean, you know, the soldiers yeah. falling off because of the Indonesian junk that's going around and seeing someone's parents rolling around on the couch. I mean, there's some some pretty bizarro twisted lyrics from the mind of Rick Nielsen. Yeah, definitely. He definitely had a unique approach to writing a pop song a lot of the time. What do you remember about the first time you saw them? Well, it was at Summerfest, you know, growing up, I would go to Summerfest every summer. And it was with a close friend of mine, Craig, who I've seen Cheap Trick with probably at least 20 times. So it's special to me that the first time I saw them was with Craig. Uh, And, you know, still a friend with Craig to this day. And usually the only time I get to see him is when we go see Cheap Trick. But yeah, it was... uh, to, to have it at Summerfest, which has always been a special thing for me, and with Craig, you know, that's what, those are the two things I re- that really come to mind. Now, see, in, in my world of being a deadhead and a Bob Dylan head, we see the same people year after year, decade after decade, but the music changes. The, the Grateful Dead in 76 and 95 were, were musically different, and Dylan changes every tour. Has the music if you listen to a tape from 1990 and 2000 and 2010 and, and 2020, how different is the music and the set list? They, they mix up the set list a lot and they've still kept putting out new music. So there's always at least a couple more recent songs in the set. And they've really been every every night is a different set and they bring songs in and out. You know, there's the the bulk of the set kind of stays pretty much pretty similar but at any cheap trick show you go to you're gonna see at least a few songs that you didn't see the last time for sure but has the sound changed over the year? i mean i mean the grateful dead the arrangements themselves would change with dylan the arrangements themselves would change are, are the are the cheap trick songs so firmly established in people's minds that surrender is always going to sound like surrender yeah yeah yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, they they have there's a live version of Surrender that's different than what's on the record, but that's pretty much what you're going to hear is that live version. Yeah, we're talking with Brian J. Cramp. His book is "This Pan This Band Has No Past: How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick." That title's sort of an in joke, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a there's a fake biography that was on the inner sleeve of their first album, and that's the first line of that biography this band has no past so so did you take that as a challenge (laughs) yeah that's what i think that was the classic rock magazine review said i really liked that concept i hadn't really thought of that but they said that my approach to the book was i took that as a challenge i just thought it was a 
you know, it's a cheap trick book. So to have kind of a joke as a title, because obviously the entire purpose of the book is to tell the story of their past. <laughs> so to start to title it, this band has no past is, yeah, it's ironic, I guess. And, and playing jokes, especially with the biographies, is something that the band members themselves yeah. did with, with, with great relish. Yeah, they never gave a straight answer. <laughs> yeah. That's that that fake biography was written by a guy who worked for Epic Records named Eric Van Loosbotter, who ended up becoming a pretty famous writer. He actually took over the Jason Bourne series when Robert Ludlum died. He just kind of wrote that himself. I guess he got a few ideas from the band, but it, I don't think the band really had a lot to do with the creation of that fake biography, but then they ended up kind of finding themselves going along with it in interviews and also adding to it or, you know, expanding on it. And so, yeah, it became very convoluted, the story of the band, but they usually never really told interviews, interviewers the truth. Bunny told me that it kind of became a curse because they found themselves going along with this fake biography when they were being interviewed. And then it just kind of snowballed and, uh, you know, it just kind of became something they had to grapple with at least for a few years there this book helped set the, the record straight what was involved in doing the research yeah i just started trying to talk to everyone i could talk to you know and somebody i would talk to would give me an idea of somebody else i should talk to and i also just scoured all the newspaper archives online bought old magazines on ebay um, i also a big part of it was even listening to podcasts or watching YouTube videos where the guys did interviews. I just tried to, you know, find any, explore any source I possibly could. So even though I didn't actually talk to Rick, Robin, or Tom, I have their voices in the book a lot because I found a lot of references to questions I would have asked them. I found them answering those questions, but for other people. And so I... I found them referencing a lot of important things and yeah, just finding old magazines, you know, like um, when I was trying to figure out how to tell the story of how the band got its name, you know, they, they have several different versions of how the, how they came across the name cheap trick. But one version is that Tom Peterson said they saw a Slade concert and Tom said, this band's using every cheap trick in the book. They love to tell that story, but, I knew that when Cheap Trick was named, Tom Peterson wasn't even in the band at the time. And then I found this one magazine called Super Rock from 1978, where somebody asked them how they got the name. And Tom said, I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> and this is the only time I've seen him actually tell the real, the, the, the real story. So to, to find something like that was just a, a huge thing for me, because now I actually have Tom saying it in an a contemporary, you know, 1978 interview. Um, and, the so, real, yeah, just, and the real story is what? The, the, the real story of how they got their name is what? Yeah, it's still hard to pin down because Zeno has one version, Bunny has another. So I put both in the book. You know, Zeno, Zeno says that they were at practice and Rick Nielsen was playing a Grand Funk Railroad riff and Zeno's like, hey, that's a cheap trick, you know. And then Rick said, "That's a, hey, that sounds like a good band name. And Bunny says it happened at rehearsal too, but he just doesn't remember that it was Zeno that said it. They both say it was at rehearsal. Somebody said Cheap Trick, and 
but yeah, but it definitely was this story they love to tell about the Slade concert. But at the same time, Bunny gave some credence to that story too. He's like, yeah, we did see Slade and they did, you know, they did do a lot of stuff. So, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to pin it down. But one thing I know for sure is that when the band started calling itself Cheap Trick, Tom Peterson was not there. <laughs> that much I know. There's a reasonable likelihood that not all of our listeners are fully conversant with the band. So we should probably at this point have some basics. Some, give us some thumbnail sketches of Rick Nielsen, Bunny Carlos, Tom Peterson, and Robin Zander. Well, all three of these guys were playing a band since they were teenagers, all four of them in different bands. So they go all the way back to the, the playing in bands in the mid-60s when they were teenagers before they were even in high school. So when Cheap Trick comes together, it's kind of a super group, a little bit of guys from that area. You know, Rick, Robin, and Tom grew up in, or Rick, Bunny, and Tom grew up in Rockford. You know, they all went to the same high school. Robin was in Love's Park, which is basically Rockford, but he went to a different high school. But they were all around. They were all seeing each other's bands as they were growing up. You know, Rick Nielsen's dad owned a music store. So Rick was kind of a, a central figure in the whole Rockford music community because he was in one of the most popular bands. And also he worked at his dad's music store. That's how his guitar collecting starts because he has access to all these guitars. All of their parents were musical. Robin's dad was a musician. Uh, Bunny's parents were both musicians. I don't, I don't know if Tom's parents were musicians, but he talks about how supportive they were. So, yeah, I think they were, you know, they were all, it was this, it's the same story of they saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. They became obsessed with the British invasion. Back then, without the internet or video games, you know, one really great hobby for these kids was playing music. And so, you know, I have a stat in my book that by 1967, something like two thirds of all American males were in a rock band. It was like a huge fad, but there's a very limited number of those people actually made it their life's work, you know, and these are the four guys from that community around Rockford, which was a really big city back then, you know, Rockford is very different now than it was when these guys were growing up. It was the biggest city in Illinois after Chicago. And so it had a huge music community, but they also played all these shows, the whole circuit of shows in the Midwest. And, um, but yeah, these are, these four guys fell in love with music at an early age and decided to make that their career. You know, there were lots of guys who were in bands in the sixties who never had any intention of making that their career, including guys I talked to were in bands with them, like Jim Zubiena, who played drums in a band with Rick, the Grim Reapers. He said, he told me, he said, I never intended that to be my career, but Rick did. You know, they always, Rick always meant for that to be his career and made it happen. Is, is there any doubt that this is above all Rick's band? Yeah, definitely Rick. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, they talk about the Grim Reapers was actually two completely different bands. And the second version of the Grim Reapers, that, which is when Rick Nielsen and Tom Peterson were first in a band together, was really Rick joining Tom's band, which was called Toast and Jam. 
because Tom was in a band with Craig Myers and Chip Greenman. And Joe Sundberg had also been in a different version of that band called the Bull Weevils. And then he ended up joining Rick Nielsen's band, the Grim Reapers. But really, that core group of Joe Sundberg, Craig Myers, Tom Peterson, they were, Rick joined in with them more than anything. But yeah, Rick was the song, became the songwriter. And also, you know, Robin Zander is the singer of Cheap Trick, but Rick Nielsen has always been the front man. <laughs> so he's the, he's the front man. He, write, he used to write all the songs pretty much. And um, so, yeah, it's Cheap Trick has always been Rick Nielsen's, you know, creative vehicle. He's definitely been the leader. He's even the front man, even though he's not the singer. <laughs> yeah, to, to see a guitarist who travels with a little stage, I don't know what to call it, but this thing that, that he can stand up on and it's like three yeah. levels and he can tower over his his singer and doing his his guitar extravaganzas it's got to be the only guitarist who has his own rig to stand on to outshine the singer yeah exactly and it's a great dynamic because robin zander doesn't appear to have any problem with that in fact i talk in the book about how when robin first joined the band rick nielsen still wasn't sure about him because robin has always been kind of reserved Robin was never going to be David Lee Roth. So, but Rick, I mean, even back before, but to the Grim Reapers, like Joe Sundberg told me that Rick Nielsen was always crazy like that, but he might only do it in a certain song instead of for the entire set. But he was always wild and wacky and a real character on stage, but he did want a singer. And so when Robin first joined the band, he still wasn't sure about Robin because Robin was shy, not very flamboyant. And they thought about getting another guy named George Faber, who was in a band called the Finchley Boys. And apparently George was a real showman. So Rick tried to get George to join the band even after Robin was in the band. So Rick didn't necessarily want to be the front man because he tried to get George Faber to be his front man. But he ended up assuming that role and I think does it very well. So, so yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic, but it works because Robin doesn't want to be David Lee Roth. So Rick Nielsen does it instead. The thing about the Grim Reapers that most Madisonians know about is how they were the opening act for Otis Redding at the factory on December 10th, 1967. First of all, what did that band sound like at the time? The only member of Cheap Trick who was in that version of the Grim Reapers was Rick Nielsen. And they had two different two vocalists at the time they had Gary Shooter and Joe Sundberg and Gary sang kind of the rock and roll stuff like the Mick Jagger the Rolling Stone stuff and Joe Sundberg was really good at the soul material so they were a cover band they didn't do any originals um and they had you know they had a keyboard player they even had some horns sometimes I think Ross Anders and the keyboard player would play saxophone as well so they they put on a big show you know and Rick played guitar so it would have been a band that would have seemed okay to open for a soul singer like Otis. Yeah, yeah, they they had a lot of, you know, songs in their repertoire, so they could definitely, yeah, put on a good show for that crowd, yeah. But Tom Peterson wasn't in the band at this point? No, no. He had his own band. At that time, it was the, probably the Bull Weevils, and that was, that's what turned into Toast and Jam. 
and then that's kind of the band that Rick joined. They went with the name The Grim Reapers for that band just because it was more well-known, had more of a draw, or they could get bookings, but it was really a completely different band. There were really two different bands called The Grim Reapers, so it's kind of confusing. And did Ken manage both iterations? The early version, he probably was mostly just booking gigs, but he was more, I think he took on much more of a managerial role with the second version of the band. That's the band that when they got a record deal, they changed their name to Fuse. You always see that the Grim Reapers is the band that turned into Cheap Trick. Well, you know, not really, (laughs) but, you know, there was a version of that band that Rick and Tom were both in, but at the same time, um, when Cheap Trick formed, Tom wasn't even around. How did Rick process having to play that night after Otis had died in the plane crash? Yeah, it seems like it must have been really difficult. Um, the way Ken Adamani tells the stories, he talks about, you know, it wasn't that long after the Dow Chemical riot, which you probably uh, remember in Madison. And so, you know, at that time, uh, with all the protests against the Vietnam War and things, it was kind of a volatile climate. And so the police asked them to, you know, put on a show because the people were already lined up outside waiting. And I guess they were just worried that it could turn into another kind of riot type situation. But, you know, the people I've talked to who were there all said that it never had that vibe. It was just very somber. You know, obviously everybody was very sad about you know, they didn't really know. They were just hearing rumors that his plane had crashed and things, but nobody really knew exactly what had, had transpired. But um, yeah, it was kind of at the request of the police and just, you know, out of a fear of some kind of a riot situation developing that they just put on a show, you know, that was kind of the motivation to, to keep the show. A band came in from Milwaukee, I think named Lee Brown and the Cheaters that can't yeah. add him any he was just, he called around just to try to find somebody to come headline. And yeah, and the Grim Reapers played an opening set. Has Rick ever spoken at length about what that night was like? I don't think so. You know, I talked to Jim Zubiena, who was the drummer in the Grim Reapers at the time, and Ross Anderson, who played keyboards, and both of them, Jim Zubiena said it was just very sad. (laughs) You know, they had to play the show, but he said, like himself, Jim was a huge fan of Otis Redding and was very excited to see him that night. So, yeah, it must have just been a very surreal thing. And they just kind of played the show as professionals just to, um, like I said, placate the the masses. But I, I don't think they really, in the end, had to worry about any kind of a riot situation happening. But everybody was just kind of on edge in that era, you know. Riots happen in the in the spring and the late fall. They don't happen in the winter. The the riots happen in May. <laughs> yeah. Riots in Madison True. happen happen in April and May and October. That's that's the calendar for for riots and big protests. Uh, right. we, we'll we'll talk about Ken Animetti a bit more in a bit. But simply put, would the future cheap trick have gotten the exposure and the record deal to wind up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame without him? He was vital to that to that whole process so i mean one could argue no you know they were a great band they had a big following they had great songs you know so who knows what could have happened but in the the version of reality that we live in where ken was he played a vital role 
yeah, in um, making it happen for them, did a lot of work and he had so many connections and yeah, he was a huge part, you know, of the first 20 plus years of the band's career, he played a huge role. So you've got these two cute guys in Robin Zander and Tom Peterson, and then you've got these two goofballs in Rick Nielsen and, and Bunny Carlos. How long did it take for Rick and Bunny to really establish their stage outfits and establish stage personas so that every night when you went to see Cheap Trick, you knew what Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos were, how they were going to be presenting themselves? Yeah, it took a little while. Bunny was actually the first one to have his image. Um, I got a great picture that I didn't get in time for the book that was sent to me by a photographer named Marshall Mintz. His daughter sent it to me. And it's the best example I've ever seen of Cheap Trick as a glam band. But in that photo, Bunny is wearing the suit and has the short hair. Bunny's entire persona was already in place, but all three of the other guys are very glam in that photo. So Rick was actually the last person. Robin and Tom started you know, wearing suit coats and dress pants and things like that by 1975. But Rick didn't really land on his image until 76. In fact, as far as I could tell, he didn't start wearing a hat until like a month before they got their record deal. So he was wearing sweaters and bow ties and everything before he started wearing the baseball cap. That was the very last thing. And according to a guy named Brad Elvis, who played in bands around at the same time, and was a huge Cheap Trick fan and went to every show. He was at the show where somebody threw a hat on stage and Rick put it on. And then after that, he started wearing a hat. And that was in, I think, June of 76. So, and then in, um, in August of 76, they played a show at Summerfest Grounds where they opened for Peter Frampton and have a whole bunch of photos from that show that Rich Kwasniewski took. And for part of that show, Rick's not wearing a hat. And for part of it, he is. And that's, you know, they went a month later, they went to New York to record their first album. And he was still on stage with no hat on for part of that. And that was the biggest show they ever played up to that point. So yeah, his, it seems like Rick's entire persona really came into, came together right at the last minute, almost. But Bunny had his, you know, very early on. And it really was a... <clears throat> almost out of necessity for both of them. You know, there's pictures of both of those guys with long hair and everything, but they didn't look like Robin and Tom. And th they figured out that, you know, if they were going to be in a band like this, they would have to adapt and uh, find a different kind of an image. So I think there was a, a lot of utility to how they ended up where they ended up, but it really worked incredibly well. And it, was they, it was the timing was so great too because that was right when they were coming out was when new wave was becoming a thing and so they that's another way they managed to straddle genres they were making their first album is very punk heavy metal sounding but their look was almost new wave so they could you know like stiff records wanted to put out their first album <laughs> in the UK because epic epic did not put out the first cheap trick album in the UK at, until 1980. So in 1977, Stiff Records offered to put it out. So that, that's another amazing thing that they, they appealed to the guys at Stiff, at Trouser Press, you know. So 
Yeah. And, and that we, had a lot to do with the image, I think. And, and as we know, if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The logo is also an important part of that image. And in terms of, we referred earlier to creative writers. You quote a writer describing the logo as looking like, quote, a Brooklyn secretary's final typing assignment before a brutal suicide. <laughs> How did it actually come to be? Yeah, I think that was Carrie Baker who wrote that. Um, yeah, the, I, the story of the logo is a beautiful thing because the logo was created by a huge fan of the band because he loved the band so much. Uh, his name's Chris Crow and his dad, Jack Crow, had a graphic design studio in Racine, Wisconsin. And Chris used his dad's uh, graphic design studio to create the logo. The band didn't even know he was doing it. Um, he just made it on his own and then brought it to his show and handed it to him. And he'd never made a penny from it. And uh, he just made it out of love for the band. And it's an amazing logo. And it really did, I think, contribute to their their image and their mystique. And it's been, yeah, it was um, it was an amazing thing for him to create that and just give it to the band. And like I said, they had no idea he was even doing it. And what an amazing thing it turned into, you know? And, and for those who are not familiar with it, describe it, and, and then also talk about the whole checkerboard aspect of the presentation. Yeah, the logo just looks like somebody was typing it over and over on itself. Um, I, when I talked to Paula Schur, who designed their first album cover, she talked about how she really liked the logo because it was like a, a joke about reproduction at the time. You know, Chris Crow used a Thermofax and he used a, a copier. He used these different machines to just oversaturate it and just, you know, make it bleed and just make it like the way Carrie described it. It looks like somebody who just typed it and then went back and typed over it again and typed over it again. And then you've got all these different ones like Bunny, because they ended up using the all six of them that he created. But when he gave it to them, Bunny told me it came with a note that said, use one, use three, use all six, you know, whatever you want to do. So he gave them options. And um, I think they did the right thing by using the whole thing. It's because it's a very interesting design you know it's um, a very cool design and Paula Schur who was a graphic designer for Epic Records she loved the logo and she based their first album cover around the logo that's what inspired her how should how the first album cover is black and white and high contrast and then the checkerboard thing that's one of my favorite things that I discovered in writing the book is when I was talking to Joel Danzig who was one of the founders of Hamer guitars which play a big role in the history of cheap trick too and they were going to put an ad for hamer guitars in guitar player magazine this is in 1975 so they use rick nielsen as their model for the ad and he's wearing a cheap trick shirt which they had only had for a matter of months at that point when they got those shirts which that's another important thing because the original logo that chris crow designed was black letters on white but Ken Adamani was told that black t-shirts sold more. So they got black t-shirts with the white logo. And then that made the logo even cooler, you know, so, but that was just kind of a happy accident. So Rick was wearing one of those shirts and he shows up to the photo shoot. And he's wearing a white 
jacket, white pants. He's got that black and white shirt. Joel Danzig looks at this and he's like, I've got this checkerboard guitar strap on my guitar. It would look really cool because also the ad was going to be printed in the magazine in black and white. Rick is wearing all this white on black. So Joel saw that the checkerboard guitar strap would work perfectly with this ensemble that Rick was wearing. So he gets his strap, Rick puts it on the guitar, and then Rick immediately realizes he's they're onto something there. So he asks Joel, can you get me more of these straps? And now, you know, and then of course the checkerboard, and that's a direct directly related basically to the logo, I think, is why the checkerboard then comes into the the whole cheap trick aesthetic. It's really amazing the way all the different pieces came together over you know, a few year period there to where you end up with when the band surfaces on a national, international level, they have this image, this logo, this whole aesthetic. And and it was really great, wonderful to trace how all those pieces of that puzzle came together. Yeah, that checkerboard aesthetic is is a major part of the presentation of, of the stage set. I mean, it's Rick's little stand where, where he, you know, gets up on his checkerboard and the, and the floor is checkerboard. And it's, it is a dominant image in their presentation. It's a wonderful part of the aesthetic and, you know, the fans love it. You know, I'm, I'm in, in these groups on Facebook and all the time somebody will post a picture, got a new purse and it's a checkerboard purse <laughs> or check out my shoes and their checkerboard, you know, cheap trick fans love the checkerboard thing. You know, I have a checkerboard pillowcase on my pillow. I have, my wife bought me a checkerboard blanket to put on my recliner. Yeah. It's, yeah. I love it. It's just another great little piece of what, you know, for fans to really enjoy, you know, it's just one more thing that, that they have going for them. So you, you've got checkerboard. I've got tie dye. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Someone I never thought about that checker. I never thought about that checkerboard is the cheap trick tie dye. That's great. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I love it. Uh, someone we've mentioned in passing, uh, who we're now going to talk about in, in 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 detail, is Ken Adamani. Other than the musicians, the most important person in the history of cheap trick is Ken Adamani, who I'm sure is the only person in history to have both been in a band with future members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and also managed a band that was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Can you recap all his various connections, starting with a single he released that uh, by one of Bunny Carlos's bands before he was even Bunny Carlos? Yeah, he put out a single by the Pagans, which was their version of Good Day Sunshine. He also put out a single by the Grim Reapers, yeah, you mentioned that he was in a band with the Rock Roll Hall of Famer. Well, the night Cheap Trick were inducted into the Rock Roll Hall of Fame, Steve Miller was inducted into the Rock Roll right. Hall of Fame. And there you have Ken Adamani at home watching. <laughs> but yeah, he was Why in a was band he not with there? What Steve he, Miller and Boss Skaggs. Wait, wait a minute. Why was Ken Adamani at home watching and not at the ceremony? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> he should have been there. That, I, that's just a... a a, a turn of phrase they was at home watching. I mean, but it's just, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the fact that for for Ken Ken, the fact that the night she took her inducted, so was Steve Miller. It's it's you know, it's just kind of mind blowing. But talk talk about what Ken Adamani did to keep the band 
together to keep them on the road and to finally get them that record deal. Because that's, that's, to me, this is a story that transcends just the cheap trick aspect of it. I mean, this this part of the book is a detailed discussion of what it takes to move a band from bars and bowling alleys to a record deal and then the next stage. I mean, this this is really interesting stuff, whether or not you particularly like Cheap Trick as a band. So talk about what Ken Animani did for the band over the years to put them in that place to become the Cheap Trick we know now. Yeah, you know, Ken had developed this circuit. He, Ken was booking bands since like the late 50s when he had his own band out of Janesville started booking bands over the course of the 60s he built this booking agency at one point having over 100 bands that he would book shows for he develops this circuit around the midwest especially all over illinois and wisconsin so when he starts managing cheap trick he can he can keep them playing every night of the week monday tuesday wednesday every night they're playing in a different town in a different bar all over the midwest because Ken had developed all of these relationships over you know many years, could get had all these places for them to play. And the great thing about working with Ken for this book is that he has saved everything. So he has the documents, he has the letters, he has the notes that his secretary jotted down, he has receipts, he has, so when he tells me, I talked to this record label at this time, he still has the letter, he still has the, the calendar with the meeting on it or whatever. He, he got, everything's documented, which, and, and especially to have dates because my book eventually became like kind of a chronological tale. And, you know, Ken has been so incredibly helpful with all of these dates because he saved everything and has kept track of everything. And so, yeah, he, he had record labels coming to see the band. You know, he had, you know, people from Columbia, from A&M, um, you know, long before, you know, Epic, it's hilarious because Epic and Columbia, which have the same parent company, were both, you know, looking to sign the band at the same time. Representatives from both of those labels who worked in the same building were coming to see Cheap Trick at the same time. Really, the probably the reason Epic ended up with Cheap Trick is because Bunny Carlos broke his arm, with the, which is another story, but then ended up canceling a visit that was happening with Columbia. Then Epic ended up jumping on it. But, you know, even before that, like I talked to a guy who worked for A&M who came to see them, but that, because Jerry Moss asked him to, and then they ended up passing on Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick were turned down by Columbia. And then a couple months later, I think, I think he, Ken has a letter from Columbia in March 76 saying, no thanks. Then in May 76, they're coming to, uh, Mark Spector is coming to see them again. <laughs> and then Mark Spector told me that he wishes he would assign them. I think that really, because right when they had kind of this major label interest, Bunny Carlos fell and broke his arm and they had to figure out what they were going to do. So it's very interesting that when Epic Records signed them, they were playing with two drummers and Buddy was playing with one arm. Well, and they had Hank Ratza playing too. The show where the Epic reps came to see them in Madison at the Stone Hearth, which you mentioned earlier, at that show, they had two drummers. <laughs> and that was the night they got signed by the label. If Bunny hadn't broken his arm, it could have gone different ways because Columbia was coming the next night to see them. And that got canceled. 
And then Tom Werman was like, well, who for, was from Epic said, well, uh, keep those Columbia guys away because I want them, you know, so who knows what might have happened. But yeah, it's uh, Ken. That's what I loved about working with Ken is, is that he still has everything so that you can the, seeing the letter with the date, you know, we're coming to this show. He could tell you exactly which show that Nat Weiss from Nemperor Records came to, you know, is uh, just a very cool thing. I keep asking him to write his memoirs because, I mean, he's got a heck of a story to tell. Yeah, an amazing story. Um, yeah, he, I mean, he met everyone. He, it's, uh, yeah, it's even even in the book, I just love the little names that come up, you know, like Ken told me about how when the guys were living out in Philadelphia, when they had a band called Sick Man of Europe, it was three of the four guys from Cheap Trick. Um, Ken flew out there to see them. And then on the flight back, he was sitting next to um, Jim Belushi, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, or the show they played in Buffalo that was booked by Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> you know, all these all these names come yeah. up. <laughs> Irving Azoff is in this book. Yeah, Irving was around. I think he was in Champagne, Champagne Illinois. Champagne. Yeah, there's the great story of there was of the I there is a, at the beginning of one chapter. I talk about all the different rock festivals that Fuse played at, and there was one that was booked by Irv, Irving Azoff. And Ken tells the story about going in like the the shed on the farm where they had all the money and there were two guys at overalls with shotguns guarding it. And that's where Irv Irving Azoff was. But yeah, there's the letter that Ken has from, um, can't remember which label guy it is who said, Irv Azoff gave me your tape, you know? So Irv Azoff was handing out cheap trick tapes to, to guys at labels. So. Yeah. I, I just found that fascinating. I just found, you yeah. know, when, when he decides that he has to, get them a, a date in Los Angeles. He books his own theater. He actually books, he, he creates a date and, and gets, you know, inv invites record label people. And I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting part of the book is that whole get them in front of people who will, who will sign them. That's, that's a, a really, um, that's an important part of the book. Um, and he got them big dates. I mean, as you said, who, the who, queen, how big a deal was it to, open for Kiss on 28 dates in the summer of 76 when they were the largest band in the world. Yeah, that was huge. Um, that, you know, Bunny says a lot of their audience, because uh, that was right when their second album was going to come out. And it, Bunny says a lot of their audience for the second, third album, you know, came from that Kiss tour. The fact that Cheap Trick, the way they looked, I imagine at the time, when they first come out on stage in front of a front of a kiss crowd, they must have had to win them over. And they did win them over with the songs, with the music, you know. And then I think as the fans, the kiss fans heard the songs, then they probably started appreciating the image. But I picture Rick Nielsen walking out on stage in 1977 in front of a kiss. A lot of the fans were probably like, who is this guy? But then here come these songs that won them over. So yeah, the Kiss tour was a huge deal. And like you said, they, op they opened those shows for Queen right before their album came out. And Rick Nielsen tells a story of how the Japanese press were there to see Queen. That was the first time that the Japanese press caught wind of Cheap Trick. Then the Kiss tour, Japanese press are there again. So yeah, getting them on these bills with these bands quite likely led to 
all of the attention in Japan. It's like step by step. Outside of having Ken as their manager, was hooking up with producer Jack Douglas, which was arranged by Ken, the most the next most important step in getting the band signed? Yeah, 100%, because like we talked about, they had a lot of record label interest, but they never got signed. You know, they did have one offer from Capitol Records, which was no, negotiated by Butch Stone. Like you mentioned, when they went to L.A., they played at the Starwood. It was right after that that Butch Stone, who managed Black Oak, Arkansas, among others, he said, I want to help you guys get a deal. But the deal he negotiated for them, they didn't like it, so they passed on it. But like you said, the Starwood thing did lead to opportunities. So they did have interest from labels, but nobody signed them. You know, And this goes on um, for a couple of years. And then there's this idea well, what if we get a producer interested? Maybe he could help. And so Jack Douglas was the name that they landed on, most likely just because of his work with Aerosmith. You know, he had become a big deal from working with Aerosmith. So somehow Ken gets a letter to him and a tape, and he's at the Copeland Plaza Hotel because he's in the middle of making the album Rocks with Aerosmith. When he gets this tape, luckily he listens to it, he loves it, so he agrees to come and see them. And that's the show you mentioned where I was across the street. Jack Douglas flies to Waukesha, Wisconsin, goes to a bowling alley. You know, it sounds like a mythical tale, but it's actually true. It was at a bowling alley, uh, which my parents, the same room where Jack Douglas saw Cheap Trick, my parents had their wedding reception. They had their 25th wedding anniversary and just last June, they had their 50th wedding anniversary in that same room. So, you know, Sunset Bowl has been a part of my life, my whole life. And um, that room is where Jack Douglas came and saw them. And then he calls up Tom Werman, who was the A&R guy at Epic. Now, Tom Werman had already passed on the band. Ken Anime still has the note. It's in my book in 1975 where Tom Werman said no to Cheap Trick. You know, but a year later, when Jack Douglas calls him, well, now Tom is interested because Jack Douglas, you know, he has the bona fides to get Tom Werman interested. So that is why Tom Werman comes to see the band. You know, Jack Douglas saw them in March 76. Tom comes in May, sees them in Quincy, Illinois. Tom Werman talks about how he had to go outside because they were so loud. He went and stood outside of the club so he could hear the songs better. But so Tom loved them. He goes back home, tells his boss, Steve Popovich, that they come out to Madison in June, see the band at Stone Hearth, and immediately Epic wants to sign them. But yes, without Jack Douglas, the Epic deal, that's what sets the whole thing in motion for them to get their actual record deal. Yeah. And of course, Jack, for, for people who are not into the into the minutiae of record history, Jack Douglas would go on to have a, a long and close relationship with John Lennon. So Jack Douglas had some serious cred in the business. Yeah, yeah. You know, Aerosmith were on fire, you know, right at that moment when, and he and he was producing other, he was producing that band Stars. He had, he had really, Hard Rock had kind of become his thing. So he makes this really heavy, crazy first album with Cheap Trick that, but the fans just absolutely love it. It's, it's a pretty great document of that club band, you know, which 
you know, then they would go on to work with Tom Werman and it would be much more polished. But I think it's very important that Jack Douglas made that first album with them because at least we have a document of what people remember seeing in the clubs back then because they were a very kind of abrasive, loud, crazy band. And luckily, Jack Douglas got that on record. But it seems, in reading the book, it seems he imposed his own artistic theory and ignored some pretty good tunes. I mean, I Want You to Want Me and Surrender were written and recorded and not included on that first album. What happens if they're on that first album? Does, does anything in their, in their trajectory change? Yeah, it's hard to know. I, yeah, it is crazy that Surrender was a completely finished song. They were playing it live by the time they made the first album. I Want You to Want Me, they've been playing for quite a while. They did record I Want You to Want Me for the first album. And because of, see, Jack Douglas, for some reason, decided to pick their heaviest, wildest, most abrasive material for that album. Jack Douglas didn't seem to have commercial appeal or radio in mind at all. <laughs> and that's a strange thing to me, but Jack Douglas decided which songs they recorded and which songs went on the album. He made those decisions. The band just kind of, because they had like 50 songs to choose from. So they just went with it and Jack Douglas picked the songs. I love the fact that he picked their craziest songs. Like I was saying, because we get this great document of what kind of a band they really were. But at the same time, like you say, they did have I Want You to Want Me and Surrender as well. They could have recorded those and put those on the album. Would they have been hits at that time? Who knows? But, you know, they also had a version of Dream Police, which they was rearranged and kind of reorchestrated by the time it was released. But that's a song that I think there's an article in January of 77 uh, that mentions that song. Um, it existed in some form when they recorded the first album. So that's an amazing thing that the three songs that have become like their concert staples, they had them all when they made their first album, but they didn't use them. But that really goes to Jack Douglas making those decisions. One aspect of the story that I know Rock and John McDonald will appreciate is the nice shout out you give Dr. Bop and the Headliners. How important was Al Craven and the gang for Ken's business plan and Cheap Trick in particular? Well, Dr. Bob and Headliners might be the only reason that Ken Adamant even stuck with the whole kind of the music business. You know, he says that he had considered even getting out of the business. Um, and uh, Dr. Bob and the Headliners became a very popular band. They wanted him to manage them. He ended up acquiescing eventually and started managing them. And yeah, they were very popular, you know, cheap tricks early some of their earliest shows were opening for Dr. Bop and Bunny Carlos said Dr. Bop opened a lot of doors for them um, just because they could get in front of these audiences and just you know start building a following you know Cheap Trick were incredibly different from Dr. Bop but a rock fan is a rock fan you know and we all we like you know, we like rock from the 50s and from the 70s so you know, you can like both Dr. Bob and Cheap Trick, but yeah, it's a, yeah, Dr. Bob uh, kind of 
Ken Anime's management career kind of took off with Dr. Bob so that he was in a position when Cheap Trick came around, you know, to really help them to pretty quickly develop a following and start building this thing. You mentioned how loud they were. I can't imagine seeing them at Charlotte's Web. I mean, I understand the Stone Hearth and Dewey's and places <laughs> like that. I cannot imagine seeing Cheap Trick at Charlotte's Web. Yeah, that was the first, I believe that was the first show they played in Rockford with Robin. And that was a great, uh, the first uh, I heard of that show was when I talked to Rick Pemberton very early on, who was is one of the guys who was in bands with these guys. You know, he was at the first ever Cheap Trick show. He was their roadie, helping them lug their piano and their Mellotron up the stairs in Lake Geneva. And so he told me about this show at Charlotte's Web that was a Halloween show where Rick Nielsen was Woody Allen, <laughs> Robin Zander was Robin from Batman and Robin, Tom was Eddie Munster, and then Buddy Carlos says he was just Buns Carlton. He wore a shirt that said Buns Carlton, which, which was like his alter ego. You know, but Bunny dressed up for Halloween every day, right? But um, yeah, Rick Pemberton had told me about that show. And then at some point, I, I can't remember where it was, but I found Robin Zander make some reference to it. I eventually found like a confirmation of it. And I think Ken Amman eventually gave me the date, the exact date of the show. And so, yeah, it was right after Robin joined the band because Robin joined in October of 74. So this was one of the first shows with Robin, probably the first time Cheap Trick played in their hometown with Robin. And yeah, it was at Charlotte's Web, which, yeah, must have been like a folk club a yeah, little folk yeah, place yeah, right? it's, it's, i mean that's a place where jim post and dick Penny and tom dundee play that's not a place where hard rock <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a bunch of folkies um so you you were able to interview bunny carlos but not rick tom or robin why would he talk to you and, and those three not I really don't know. I tried my best, but uh, those three guys don't participate in anything like this, really. It's not only me. Um, Rick, I tried really hard at least to get Rick to answer any kind of questions. You know, I pretty much begged their management. Um, I, I, I don't know if they have an attitude of like, this guy's just trying to make money off of us or they're like, I, you know, I don't want to answer certain questions. I was never looking. The last thing I wanted to do is put anything in the book that would make them, that would make them angry anyways. Um, you know, obviously this is just a, a, a labor of love, this book. And um, I absolutely love everything about this band. So um, wasn't looking for any dirt. Don't want to talk about their personal lives or anything like that. But yeah, it's just not something they're interested in for whatever reason. And that's their prerogative. I think Bunny, you know, Bunny's in a different position because he's not with the man anymore. He's very proud of what they accomplished, as they all should be. Um, and I think Bunny, he's, Bunny's a huge fan of the history of rock and roll. So I think Bunny really appreciates the telling of these stories because he's very interested in the stories of all the bands he loves. So he understands that point of view of a fan who wants to know everything about their favorite band. 
he really gets that because he's that guy, you know. And I think he, I think he's a fan of, of Cheap Trick. He loves what they did. He loves what they accomplished. And yeah, so yeah, he was very generous and um, and answered any question I threw at him as well as he could. And um, and I, yeah, like I, I think he really appreciates the idea of documenting this kind of a story because he wants to read this kind of a book about all the bands he likes. So he gets it. By the time the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he was no longer in the band. Apparently the leaving was not exactly voluntary, but he did come back and played that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame date, unlike many other bands that had split by the time of their induction, who did not come together and, and perform as an ensemble. How satisfying was it for you as a fan to see all four of them reunite like that and, and play that date? It was so important. Like you say, there's been so much drama over the years at those ceremonies and Cheap Trick are the only band who did have drama, who managed to put it all aside, go there, not have any drama, you know, and just accept the honor and, you know, take it seriously and perform as a band. I mean, we've seen so many other bands from Blondie to Van Halen to Kiss to every band that has any drama, it did not go well <laughs> when they went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Cheap Trick, it went very well. It was, it was great. There was no drama they, and they just did it the exact right way. And, you know, it's a lot of rock fans have a very negative attitude about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which I understand. There's still a lot of bands that aren't in there. There seems to be a kind of certain point of view, like a certain taste that kind of, but I think because a lot of the younger bands are getting in, I think we're seeing a lot of mo more of the bands that people complained about for a long time not being in. Now that you've got the guys from Guns N' Roses and Pearl Jam and you know Nirvana and all these younger guys, they're going to start voting for Kiss and Cheap Trick the way that all the ro Rolling Stone-type intelligentsia weren't. So I think that's why we've started seeing all these guys get in. But um, for Cheap Trick to get in, they're not they were never as huge as a lot of the other bands in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they always had the respect of their peers. And so I feel like Cheap Trick getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a validation of that, that they have that respect from all the other people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So that's really what got them in. The, you know, the first time they were ever nominated, they were voted in. And um, I think it was a great validation for them for a band on their level to get that kind of respect. And yeah, so I think even though I do understand the attitude about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I do think it's really wonderful that they got put in there and that they went to the ceremony and had no drama. Yeah, it's great. They, they got inducted on their first nomination, but they weren't nominated until 10 or 12 years after they were eligible. Yes, yeah, it took way too long to nominate them, but <laughs> there's there's always been a bias there's against kind of hard rock music <laughs> yeah. at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, we've been seeing that overcome. I mean, even just this year, Judas Priest got put in, but they had to put them in on some kind of a technicality because they could never get the votes. So 
you know, we're still waiting <laughs> for a lot of uh, these bands to get in, but at least it's been changing for the better. Well, you know? I, I, I keep waiting for Warren Zevon and the new writers of the Purple Sage. So I don't know if my time is ever going to come. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, that, that, that performance, just watching the video of it, there is, as you say, there is no drama whatsoever. I mean, the inter the interplay between among the musicians looks entirely positive. They look like they are having a good time playing together. Even, you know, Robin and Bunny. And I, my sense is that Robin is the reason why Bunny is no longer in the band. But they they look like they're having a good time. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very special. I was so relieved. <laughs> too that it went well um i think it's just another testament to you know to cheap trick it's another reason for fans to be proud um yeah another thing that surprised me in the book was to read the contemporaneous praise from critics like dave marsh and robert hilburn and I, i'd always thought the band had, had great commercial success and then you know they toured incessantly but i didn't realize the extent of critical acclaim that they also had yeah yeah they really did they yeah and you know that that was a that time when um punk was happening new wave was happening um they you know these are guys that were doing this long before punk but you know when they had their moment it was a very interesting time and they managed to even though they were coming sort of from a different place they managed to ease their way in there and uh so yeah they the timing was great for when they came out and and yeah it was interesting to see that robert hilburn who could be very cantankerous uh really appreciated them because yeah you might not have necessarily expected that yeah except for the epilogue about the rock and roll hall of fame the book essentially ends in about 1980 when you were six so you obviously did not see any of the shows you write about if you had a time machine, what are the two or three shows you would use it for? Well, the first one that comes to mind is a bill that has always blown my mind that happened in 1977 in Cleveland. Actually, I think it was the night before they left for the KISS tour. That's why they were out east, because they left from New York to go up to Canada for the KISS tour. And they played a show with the Dictators and the Dead Boys, who are two bands that I really love. And just that bill... Uh, has always blown my mind that that happened and um but you know it would be hard not to like go to their first show or something like that but i would definitely go to the starwood in los angeles in november of 1975 which you had mentioned earlier when they went out there to try to impress the the record executives um but yeah and then i think about when they they when they were trying to get the band together and they went out to the dutch mill in north dakota like when they they call it like rock and roll boot camp when they went out there ken adam and he sent them out there to like get get it together and some kind of thing like that yeah that i've thought a lot about but um you know i'm just thinking from a historical perspective of these these things that i know about but in terms of like the quality of the performance i would definitely want to see them in like their heyday of the clubs in like 75 76 I would go to any show, <laughs> you know, 
uh, any of these random places they played in Wisconsin, like the Brat Stop or whatever, you know, would just be amazing to go to. These places where they'd be like, oh, yeah, we would just sit on the bar stools and spin around to watch the band, you know. <laughs> I love these different stories of all these different clubs that they played. Um, and I, you know, I've learned a lot about these different places. So I would even want to just go to see what, what these places looked like you know, that I've written about and then see them there. So I would have to go to some just random bar in Wisconsin in 1976. You know, that would be something that I would just really have to be able to, to do if I had the opportunity. From 76 to 80, I was pretty much living in Washington. So I would probably want to go see a show at the Stone Hearth just to, uh, to see, yeah, what, right. see what that was like. See, see what I missed <laughs> by not being here at that period of time. The stone barf is what I was told <laughs> people called it. <laughs> it is quite a book. It is very entertaining. It's very interesting. And as I say, it tells both the story of how Cheap Trick became Cheap Trick. And, and the sub story is the whole record business machinations of touring and touring and touring and getting your, yourself in front of a music executive and getting signed and all that. And congratulations. And yeah, it's a dream come true. <laughs> you know, I, I could say I'm a published author now, which probably is the one goal I've had ever since elementary school. You know, I, I don't know if I envision it being nonfiction, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a dream come true. Thank you very much, Stu, for having me on the show. It's been fun. Well, my pleasure. And, uh, and it got me into listening to some cheap trick and to see, to see what I missed the first time around. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's all the time we have with Brian J. Cramp. Again, the book is This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick from the good people at Jawbone Press. Andrew Thomas will be your host next week with his guest, Kathleen Harlan. Her book is Fruiting Bodies. I'll be back for the pledge drive on the 28th with part two of my conversation with our own Frank Emspach about his memoir, Troublemaker, Saying No to Power. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, the aforementioned Andrew Thomas on the engineer board, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored community radio.